Hello there everyone, this is Dan Figella here with Tech Emergence where we interview entrepreneurs, researchers, and investors in the domain of emerging technology. It's been quite some time since uh, we focused specifically on robotics. We had Nick Bostrom on not, not all that long ago, focused a lot on virtual reality. Um, and moving into robotics, we're going to talk today about Swarm Robotics. And I'm lucky enough to have James McClurkin on the line with me right now, Swarm Robotics researcher who's spoken uh, all over the place, including Singularity Summit, where I heard about and became fascinated with his work. James, how are you today? Good morning. I'm fine today. Fantastic. I, I, I wanted to be able to start things off in terms of our interview and where we might um, go with, with Swarm Robotics and, and where it's going to go in the future with sort of how you got to where you are and how insects were an initial inspiration to how you're getting robots to move and collaborate. So my path through Swarm Research started uh, back when I was an undergrad, in fact. Um, and at that time, in, uh, working with Professor Rodney Brooks um, in his lab, uh, a bunch of grad students were studying different things. Uh, one student was looking at multi-row systems, which had robots the size of toasters. Uh, my undergraduate research advisor was looking at micro-robots. So she had you know, literally robots. Um, some of them you could see. Some of them had motors that you were only 100 microns on the side. Hard to see those. And I was working on um, building larger robots, maybe a human inch in size. Um, but the whole lab was also studying animal behavior. Um, so I got interested in trying to understand how ants were able to coordinate and cooperate and how they were able to make local decisions um, and have those local decisions turn into large-scale group behaviors. Um, and that has been the path I've been on since, since the, uh, the mid-90s. Got it. And, and, and a lot of your um, initial work and, and some of what's been made popular on YouTube and elsewhere, if, if people want to look up Swarm Robotics, has had to do with kind of the search-rescue side of things as well as mapping. And I know you're moving into um, other areas as well. Um, talk to us a little bit about your newer project with respect to having robots and swarms of robots be able to move large objects, maybe eventually being able to assemble them or do things with them in that way. So, so swarm robots are good at, at two types of tasks in general. Um, tasks where you need them spread out over a large geographic area yep. and tasks that you can uh, break down to many parallel operations because then you can take advantage of the population and you can get performance gains. Um, uh, at least as good as, as, you, as you add more robots. So the, the, the search and rescue task is kind of the bread and butter. It's kind of the standard task. Yep. Um, this is what the, the, the military is kind of interested in. Um, and, you know, we just lost another uh, jetliner. Yeah, Ocean. goodness gracious. Here's, here's a task that humans uh, simply cannot do. The, the only way to solve this problem is large numbers of robots looking for the wreckage. Um, people can't do it. Uh, we can't train enough enough dolphins to do it, you got to have thousands of robots to put this plane. Um, so, so those kinds of tasks where you want to be over a large area and be mobile are ideal for swarms. Got Another it. class is when you want to break it up into lots of parallel operations. Um, and assembly, you know, building a house, is, is, is a great example where you can have lots of tasks going. You know, you get the frame built up on all different sides. Once the frame is in place, you can have um, workers uh, human or robot workers um, doing plumbing and doing electricity and doing drywall and all these things can happen in parallel. Um, but robots are best at tasks that are too dangerous for people to do. Yeah. So instead of building a house, you know, here in, in, in Delaware, you'd want to build a house uh, on Mars, somewhere where it's too dangerous to send people to work to build. Cool. So the eventual objective would be having them um, 
again, well, I guess it's probably the same thing with the search and rescue, right? I mean, the, the one of the reasons that robots would be great for that, in addition to fitting into tight places, is because, by golly, some of those uh, scenarios, whether it's, you know, exploring under the water or in a burnt, you know, wreckage of a building, is pretty darn dangerous. Well, you just named one of the famous three Ds of robotics. There's dangerous, dirty, and dull. Yeah. These are the, um, any task that, that one of those three Ds is, is what you want robots to do. Uh, my work is all about the fourth D, which is distributed. And we, we want to understand um, how to take tasks like this and break them up into lots of small tasks. So the, the, the assembly task um, is a task where you've got to move large objects, you've got to move small objects, you've got to move a lot of different objects to different locations. Um, they're not all going to the same place. It's not like a, um, a freight train where they're all lined up going to one spot. It's, it's more like a, a scatter band, marching band thing where they're all going to different places. And, and this, is, this is ideal for large populations of robots. Got it. Now, um, in terms of where you might or where you're aiming to get in, in even the coming five years or so, it sounds to me like a lot of the present projects in this domain, I mean, of course, there's some just general research interest. Um, some of it might also have to do with, you know, where's the funding and the interest kind of come from outside of just university brains, which it sounds like the military obviously has some ideas. In just the next five years, we'll, we'll go a little bit farther if need be as well. Um, what would you hope to have uh, Swarm Robots become capable of doing? Or, or maybe maybe we don't even release them all into the world, but what, what level of functionality um, are you personally in your own lab really aiming to sort of attain with robots in, in the next maybe five years or so in the various mapping, rescue, and uh, assembly and moving types of tasks that you're building on today? So five years in, in the time frame of science is basically tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so, so, so what can they do tomorrow? Well, they can. Um, our recent work has had the robots uh, planning pass through their environments. They, they can understand that they are manipulating. So you, we have a, a new project that has a bunch of robots with these um, grippers around the side. So they look kind of like daisies in, in some sense. Um, but the petals of the daisy can move to grip onto things so they run into them sideways. Um, so the robots could all gather around an object, maybe you got six robots around an object, and they start dragging across the room. Uh, but when they get to a door, uh, maybe they have um, some teammates who are up ahead, and they have measured the door, and they know that the robots who are dragging the object need to rotate the object to get it through the door. So, so the robots who are doing the manipulation will have advanced warning, and they will know when they need to begin to rotate, and then spin the object so it goes through the door uh, nicely. Um, and these are the sorts of things that are that I'm working on right now with, with me and my students to get them to be able to measure the size of the object, measure the size of the door, know where to go, um, compute a, a good path to the door, um, uh, all those things together. Um, and, and the way that we do this all is using distributed algorithms, distributed computation, so there's no big giant robot in charge. They all can figure it out, kind of like ants, I guess the analogy you made. Exactly, exactly like ants. Yep. Okay, so um, in, in, in five years, and we'll talk about the further future as well, in five years or so, is this going to be seen anywhere outside of your lab or, or a couple other fancier labs in terms of the applications of Swarm Robotics? Will it still be at that point most likely not relegated to, but exclusively living in the 
cool science YouTube channels and the amazing labs where this kind of research is being done? Or might there be some industry or, or otherwise application out in the world where, where these little guys might be building stuff or moving stuff, um, you know, in the United States or elsewhere? So the first place, so first, the first answer to your question is that swarms are already out there. When you go to Amazon and you buy something, a robot picks up that, that shelf that has your product on it and brings it to the person who's putting it in the box. So, so robots and swarm, and, and you know, these are thousands of robots working in these warehouses. So this, this is already real. Um, oh. you'll, the first place most people, I think, will see swarm technology um, in the real world is in their cars. And our cars will understand where traffic is, where traffic isn't, oh. uh, uh, what's going on on the road, and, and be able to, to um, amongst themselves, decide that, you know what, we should get off the highway now because there's a bad accident up ahead. Or the road conditions are very poor up ahead. We're, we're going to slow down now so that we don't have any problems. Okay, so, so in other words, a lot of this distributed cognition in this you know, individual brains in some sense of them having some kind of aggregate knowledge, but making individual decisions. Um, in in it, it sounds as though a lot of that would translate to the big commercial, you know, Toyotas and Fords that we we drive around in all day. Oh yeah, all, all the parts are already in most of the cars that we drive. They have radios, they have computers, they have sensors. Uh, what's missing is the software and the stuff to pull it all together. Got it. Okay, so in that sense, it's less of a barrier to entry in that domain because hardware-wise, the stuff's there. We would just need it to work together and to click in a way where we could all function more effectively. Yeah, that actually, that's kind of the easy part. The hard part is then convincing the lawyers that's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah, I imagine, yeah, yeah. Um, lawyers. Anyway, so... With that being said, in terms of how that might translate into car world, so you know, I know the folks that are tuned into Tech Emergence really are more than fascinated with uh, the the projections or or I, you know, ideas of real experts about where this stuff is going to make its difference. Um, in the car space, is this going to be, um, you know, am I going to have something pop up on my dash that would say something, or not on my dash, but maybe in my little center console that might say, hey, you know, it looks like there's a pretty rough accident. It would make the most sense if you're still headed to the baseball game to to you know take exit. Not that I've ever watched a baseball game in my life, but uh, take exit seven here um, just so that you can miss this gargantuan traffic that we're probably going to be sitting in for two hours. I mean, am I am I going to expect something like that to happen, or are we talking about when Google's got the self-driving cars and I'm lean back drinking umbrella drinks and my car just takes exit seven by itself? So the first place you'll see it is on your cell phones, and and there are apps right now that are shared. Uh, traffic apps that actually get you, you know, 85% of the way there already. Um, and then cell phones will be better integrated with cars. The next generation of cars is already happening. Uh, Whether you assume we have a cell phone and that integrates nicely with your with your car. Um, and we're going to see innovation in the app world that that will that will push this stuff um, more into reality, probably faster than the big auto manufacturers will do it. Yeah, yeah, okay. So it'll be much nimbler in that respect. That's how it'll initially break through. Mm-hmm. Got it, okay. Um, it, it, because, yeah, I can imagine, I mean, in order for the car itself to, you know, have that kind of technology, all the major brands would have to agree on some kind of protocol as well. There could be an app company and get, you know, 6 million downloads in a given geographic area in, in you know, 8 months or something and actually have, you know, people being able to learn from each other's experience and where the traffic is and where the traffic is not. So initially, your projection there 
is that it's going to be more in the actual cell phones. Any other applications of where um, cell phone technology, which is sort of, I guess we could see this as sort of, at least has the potential of being the aggregate brain for us people. Um, we certainly do a lot of maybe not, you know, software-wise the same things, but a lot of functionally the same things as maybe you're trying to do with robots and collaborating with ourselves thanks to our cell phones. Anywhere outside of the car, too, where cell phones might or, or already are, and I'm sure there are, um, acting or, or aiding those kind of swarm behaviors. So, let me see if I think about this. So, cell phones, so the, the difference between cell phones and robots um, is... is um, there's, there's a person in the middle of the cell phone yep. um, action cycle. So with yep. a robot, when you tell a robot to go somewhere, just does stuff. Um, it, it, it goes and do it, and then does it. When you tell a cell phone, hey, tell the user to move to this location, the user may or may not do that. Yeah, it's got to tell a man. Yeah. Um, exactly. So, 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 the key of multi-robot and distributed robotics, and the key thing that makes them different from um, wearable sensors or distributed sensor networks, is that they're not just so a sensor network, you know, there, there are three different things here. There's there's sensor networks where the sensors are, are static and they're dispersed throughout a forest, for example, to measure microclimates. Um, those sensors don't ever move. And then there's these mobile networks, and of which the obvious example is the cell phone, where the, the sensors are and the computation is being carried around with some other device. It doesn't really have um, the ability to tell the device where to go. Um, but it, it is location aware and does different things based on where it is. And then robotics, where the sensing and the computation tells itself where to go. So, for example, let's say you, you were trying to spread out um, picnic blankets. And uh, with a robot, you would just run, oh, I don't know, a centroidal Boinoy algorithm that moves the robot. Oh, yeah, I write those all the time. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone does that. Yeah, um, on the weekend. Um, that moves the robots to the center of that Boinoy cell so that they all spread out the picnic blankets nice and evenly. Um, turns out, actually, uh, people do this all the time. Uh, when people do have picnics in, in Central Park, for example, if you look at the Google Earth, the Google Satellite view of Central Park um, during the summertime, and you can go back in time and see this, um, you'll see the picnic blankets are spread out in a nice uniform dispersion. And the algorithm that people use, just staying away from other nearby people, um, results in the same uniform dispersion that robots running this central oil controller that I just mentioned would produce. So these the, these kinds of, and maybe your phone app could tell you, you know, there's a spot over here. You should, if you walk, you know, 25 feet in this direction and cross this bridge, you'll get to a nice place for a picnic. Um, so you can, now you can pack your central park picnickers even more efficiently than they're already packed. Okay, so that, that might be another kind of, at least to some degree, crossover of those two technologies. In terms of where you see the further reaches thereof, as kind of our last question here, uh, for ro for swarm robotics itself, as you had mentioned, you know the timelines and science, you know five years is not super duper long. When do you figure swarm robotics in the in the sense maybe that your lab is working on them, where we have a number of these little fellas, they're independent, functioning like ants in some way, hopefully more intelligent in many respects, and capable of search and rescue missions on a regular basis in developed countries, maybe capable of uh, con doing small construction gigs in, in maybe some places that are dangerous. That could be Mars, that could be here on Earth. Um, 
when do you see that transition sort of moving forth where folks outside of, you know, people watching Singularity Summit and the Discovery News uh, YouTube channel will know about Swarm Robotics and it'll be, it'll be out there making a difference somewhere? Where would you predict? So the, the places that, that are right are some of the stuff is, is, in, is in, um, in the industry where most people wouldn't see uh, a farming or crop monitoring. We can send swarms of, of quadrotas over to get um, uh, very specialized data about your, about your farms. Uh, we already talked about aircraft search. Um, there could be um, search and rescue in avalanches or earthquakes is one of my favorite examples. Um, we can imagine uh, for the manipulation and construction tasks um, that uh, maybe you start seeing um, ground cleared and level by teams or robots working together. Uh, maybe some um, ice picking jobs. Um, the, the, problem, the, but the, the problem with all these tasks is that they all rely that on uh, solving some of the key problems of robotics in general, uh, the problems of sensing and perception. So sensing is easy. Take a camera, you strap it on a box, and you can measure, you can sense images. Yep. Perception, in other words, knowing what you're looking at, that's the hard part. And perception, um, understanding perception, um, we think, is the same thing as understanding artificial intelligence. And that has been, um, we, we've been chipping away at that uh, steadily for 40, 50 years now. But it is unclear uh, when we're going to see the breakthroughs in artificial intelligence that yep. let us put robots, any robots, not just swarms, but any robot at all, into the unstructured environments that we can navigate so effortlessly. Yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of the the bigger game artificial intelligence question that's probably holding back. Uh, it sounds like so much of our right. progress in a million That's different right. respects. In terms of the, the agricultural picture, um, just to, to paint that one a bit, um, what else maybe in, the, in that domain of agriculture might we be able to pull off even without said gargantuan AI breakthroughs? It seems as though there are some circumstances where, shucks, you know, if these things are around humans or they're, they're doing something super important, um, by golly, you, you know, I don't think we're going to be doing it unless these these uh, massive shifts in AI are really able to to take shape in, in agriculture. Are there some some larger kind of aggregating uh, activities that, that these machines might do that might be kind of safe enough to, to still be able to pull off uh, again? You know, when 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 they end up making their way into the world in the coming decades. So agriculture um, is in that is in a class of, of applications. Um, where they're industrial and you have a controlled environment. So agriculture, mining, yes. uh, transportation, where you control the system and you control the environment. Uh, so the, the logistics hub example I gave, when Amazon uses robots to move the packages around, they build the warehouse specifically to make the robot's job easier. And by making the robot's job easier, the people's job gets easier too. So every, everybody wins. Um, and in agriculture, you design your fields, you design your, your, your layout, your, your crops. You don't have, you know, subdivisions on your fields. You don't have um, random uh, people running around your, your environment. Yeah, yeah, You're a yeah. controlled, structured environment. So, so those class of, of applications where you can control the environment are where uh, you can see robots and then eventually swarms of robots start to have a real impact. So in agriculture example, um, the example I gave earlier was on sensing uh, very small variations of the field. 
Um, so right now, combines are, are largely largely robotic. There's a human operator, but there's GPS information. The, the GPS can guide the combine in perfectly straight roads. Um, it knows where it is, so it can, if it's doing um, spraying, for example, it can put down insecticide only where um, it's needed. Uh, it can look at historical, you know, maybe infrared scans or historical data about the yields in various locations and put down fertilizer only when it's needed. Um, so you end up doing basically an inkjet, it's like an inkjet printer across your field. Um, that kind of stuff, you could do that, that same kind of application of, of pesticide or fertilizer or, or crop inspection remotely. You send out your, your swarm of 30 drones, they spread it over a large area over your field, um, they drop down when they need to, get some good pictures, maybe they have an infrared camera to see what the plants are doing, how much sunlight they're reflecting or absorbing, and then that data then can be, um, like you do, Every morning, instead of using aggregate satellite data for the year, every morning you get a new localized micro nice. crop report. And and uh, as you had mentioned, it's not like in those uh, domains where these these machines are going back and forth and performing their job, they're going to run into a seven year old or you know hit a bus or something like that. You know, we got a gargantuan field of corn. They've got some stuff to do. Um, you know, even if one of them just kind of tanked out of the sky, hopefully we'd at least know where it was and there wouldn't be any terrible negative effects, but right. it sounds like the upside's pretty darn strong there. And it sounds also as though, to your opinion, um, that might be a space where the bigger application of swarm robotics, in addition to the smaller level that it's applied now, um, agriculture might be a place where it really starts to sort of move more into the mainstream of agricultural business and uh, sure. science. I, I just use agriculture as an example. That there are many other industries. One of many. You mentioned uh, mining. You mentioned mining as well. Well, mining is a good example, right? You know, you've got this big mine. Where should we be going? What is out there? Uh, um, how do we get the rubble out? Um, how do we dig efficiently? Uh, let's get some more sensors and let's build a sensor network to know what's going on in our tunnels. Is water seeping? Is there gas coming out? Yeah. Uh, let's, let's, let's have a detailed map. That's dirty and dangerous and sometimes dull as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's have a detailed map of, of where we, we are detecting uh, stresses and strains. Let's have some safety so we can do a safety um, before we have collapses. Now, I'm just going off the floor constantly here and making this stuff up. Uh, people in these industries, uh, when, you give, when you give them this kind of tech, when you say, okay, imagine if you've got not one robot, but you've got 100 robots. And, and then they, they sit there and think for a while. And then I switch it and say, okay, now imagine you have 10,000 robots. And there, there are these, you get to this point where the population size lets you um, not just add more numbers and do things faster, but let you solve the problem in fundamentally different ways. And that's, that's in some sense, is the real key of my research to figure out if I had 10,000 robots, could I solve this problem in a fundamentally different way? Could I, instead of building a geometric map of the building, if I'm exploring a building, Maybe the robots themselves become the map. If you've got 10,000 robots spread out over the floor of the building, well, anywhere where robots are is a floor. Anywhere where robots aren't is a wall. Huh. So, so again, yeah, your, your question being sort of what other problems could they solve? And presumably if they all had cameras or some other mode of sensing in any way, shape, or form, you could do more than just their locations. You could draw additional data from them as well. That's right. That's right. And now cameras are, are a great example of one of the limitations of swarm technology in that if you have 10,000 robots and 10,000 cameras, um, you do not want to have a big workstation with 10,000 images on it. Yeah, that's um, tough. 
So, so you have to embrace local processing, local computation. Maybe nearby robots share their images, uh, but you can't accumulate all the images to one spot. Big time. And now, being as those are some of the problems that you're aiming to solve, if people do want to learn more about your particular research, I realize we're right about on time, um, in terms of, I know you'd mentioned the, the um, newer project about sort of moving and potentially in the future assembling with these swarm robots, your exploration and, and mapping tasks, where could they go to learn more? So the best places right now um, to look at swarm robotics, uh, there, there are two locations actually. Um, there is um, academia in general. There's my website. Uh, my colleague, uh, Radha Nagpal at Harvard, uh, Gaurav Sukhatmi at University of Southern California. Um, uh, Gaurav Sukhatmi uh, at, at uh, UCAL there? Uh, Gaurav Sukhatmi. Oh, Gaurav. Okay. Is it G-I-R-O-F? I just want to write this down for our readers here. Um, let me make sure I get that right. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I imagine that some folks might be Googling this as we're having our conversation. G-A-U-R-A-B. Got it. S-U-K-H-A-T-M-E. He's at USC. Cool. At Harvard, um, her name is Radhika, R-I-D-H-I-K-A. Yep. And last name is Nodpal. And at Michigan, uh, his name is Edwin Olson. That's easy. That's easy. Um, and there, there are other researchers, but the, the, those, those are... Those are the folks you like a lot. Yeah, these are, these are guys who are, who are fighting the, the, the hard fight, which is the one of distributed computation and, and not pushing all the data to one centralized location but trying to have the robots themselves figure out what they're doing. Cool. The other place to look for these kind of swarm activities um, is in museums. There's an exhibit that just opened in the Museum of Mathematics in New York City uh, that, that is called The Swarm, and it's very, very cool. And there's one coming up in the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, um, also that will feature uh, robots for And the one in Chicago where actually will feature uh, my robots. Nice. Okay, fantastic. Hopefully yeah, at so some point a... they uh, they make it up here to Boston as well. And obviously for the folks turned tuned in, if you want to look up James McLurkin, just the way it sounds, um, you can very easily come across his talks and some of his research and the cool robots that he's working on. As well, James, I very much appreciate you taking the time here for the interview on Tech Emergence. You are welcome. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, then be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Uh, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week.